Well, good morning, everyone. If you're new here, we just want to say welcome. Glad that you're here. Glad that uh, uh, you came to hear from the Lord this morning. You came to fellowship and, and worship here at Addy. Uh, if you're relatively new, which means different things to different people, I suppose. You know, like the old timers, if you haven't been here for 20 or 30 years, you're still new. Uh, I'm going to lower that bar down to maybe like, <laughs> you know, folks that are new in the last six months. How's that for a low bar? We just welcome you as well, and actually welcome everybody. We're just glad that you guys are here. You know, it's interesting. Um, it's the first week that I have not played the drums in a long time. And uh, Austin, thank you, you and Lauren, for coming up and joining us in worship, and Brock as well. And, and uh, it was a pleasure to... Try not to get misty here. It was a pleasure to stand in the back and worship with you while I was holding my granddaughter. And all the ladies go, oh, isn't that so cute? And I don't fancy myself as a baby whisperer by any means, but there is a fella who's a baby whisperer, world class, world class baby whisperer that's in our midst. And you, maybe you guys don't know this. I don't know. I'm looking around trying to figure out where he's at. Uh, because he's just coming through the door, and he just turned 35. Come on in, Matt. <laughs> Happy birthday, buddy. He, uh, I, 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 honestly, I can say this. I don't think there's a guy in this building that loves to hold and cuddle babies and just coo and carry on like big old tough Matt Allwine. It's just not, I know you're thinking, oh, I am going to get this guy back so bad. I can see the look on his face. I'm sure there's probably a few that didn't think that you would make it to 35. But uh, I didn't know you in those years, so I, I don't have an opinion. I'm doing all I can do to get you to 45. So Anyway, happy birthday. Let's get into it. We've been studying through 1 Corinthians, the epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a church that he founded, a church that he started. You can read Acts 18, uh, read in the book of Acts, it's a lot of the, the historical start to the church, uh, starting at Pentecost, starting with the apostles, uh, obeying what Jesus told them to, to, to do, and that's to just tarry in Jerusalem, early part of Acts, first couple of chapters, just stay there, the Holy Spirit's going to come, this thing's going to get wild, so buckle your seatbelts, you know, Jesus followers, that's like my interpretation of the first century, the first, you know, few months of it, just hang tight for 50 days, and the Holy Spirit's going to do something wild, and from there, the church just grew and grew and grew out of Jerusalem, uh, one of those that became an apostle, he was actually Judaism's biggest uh, uh, enforcer, was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, of course, was converted to Christianity and became one of the uh, largest apostles in as much as he wrote the majority of the, first of the New Testament. Uh, he would call himself the least of apostles, though. We look at him as, as being this superhuman guy. I'm telling you, this guy was as average as average gets. In fact, the way he lists himself and the things that he went through on behalf of the gospel, 
the beatings, the punishments, the times that he got stoned, left for dead, dragged out of the city. You know, all of these things that he endured. Uh, if he were to walk through that door right now, we would kind of be like, whoa, what's this guy done? You know, did he get drugged behind a train through the middle of L.A. or what happened? You know, he was not a sight. Not a sight to behold for sure. But he wrote this book, this epistle, and many others. And we're right at the tail end. In fact, next week we're going to close out our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, then I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks. Uh, Tim Weeby's going to bring the word for a couple weeks while we're gone. But uh, we're right to the tail end, and we're going to finish up. We spent, this will be week number three in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And it's really a, a treasure trove of heavenly information on the resurrection. That's how I look at it. Chapter 15, the apostle, it's, it's probably the largest block of writing about what the resurrection is. What does it mean for us as Christ followers? Uh, what's going to happen? And, uh, and, and what it's going to look like. And we don't have a, a, a ton beyond that. We have probably the greatest look is in the Gospel of Luke. And we get a look at uh, what Jesus' body was like, his resurrected body. But one such concern that the Apostle Paul had was, is do they really understand the whole of the Gospel and especially the resurrection? And so that's, what, that's kind of the, the, uh, the question as we started chapter 15. Do the Corinthians understand what the gospel is? Uh, that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was uh, hung on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, that he died, that he was buried, and on the third day rose again. That's the gospel message. And then after that, he was seen by the, the apostles, he was seen by the ladies, he was seen by the guys, he was seen by... Uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians earlier, he says there was 500 people that saw him in his resurrected body, right? After that, he was seen by his own half-brother, James. And so you can go, Paul says in my summary, you can go and talk to them. He's telling the Corinthian believers, if you don't believe what I have to say, just go, go talk to the people that saw it. Uh, many of them are still awake. There's a few that are alive, and there's a few that have passed on. But do they really understand the whole of the gospel, especially the resurrection. Uh, I want to read a quote before we get going because there's a lot of people that don't believe that the resurrection is a fact. Uh, one such that does, though, that was converted, a man that was converted actually while he was spending time in prison, federal penitentiary, was a fellow named Charles Colson. If you uh, know your history and your U.S. history, that name rings a bell. Charles Colson started a prison ministry after he was saved uh, and uh, <clears throat> I'll give you the quote it says this I know the resurrection is a fact and the Watergate proved it to me now Charles Colson was involved in the Watergate scandal and uh, and he was, ends up being guilty for that and spends time in prison and he uses the Watergate scandal of which he was a part of and he says the Watergate scandal proved it for me how he says because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. <clears throat> then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if that were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. 
impossible. So the very thing that landed him in prison, the very events that, that, that he and other people spent time in, in federal penitentiary for, was the very thing that, that then opened his eyes to who Jesus was. And it was that very example that for him really proved, hey, this is real. This is real. It wasn't just 12 men. It was hundreds. And eventually thousands. And eventually tens of thousands and millions. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. and It's really titled this way, Paul's response our resurrection is the basis, is based on Jesus' resurrection. Our resurrection is based on Jesus' resurrection. There's a lot of people out there that are going to say they're going to live on in some other format. But they don't base their afterlife on Jesus' resurrection. So be wary of that. People start sending you, you know, stuff in the mail. We got stuff in the mail from some of those types of people this week. You know, and they're basing, they're basing the fact that they're going to get off of this planet, that they're going to live in eternity on something other than Jesus' forgiveness, His penalty, His payment for their sins. Be careful. Be wary of that kind of stuff. Don't get into that kind of stuff. Paul ends with this warning. We spent a little bit more time than maybe I would think that we would last week on this. He ends with this warning, he says in verse 33 and 34, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness, he says, and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And last week we made a big deal over discerning those influences in our lives. And why did we make a, a, a big deal about that? For one reason, really. Uh, most of what we understand is caught, not taught. Now, I'm not disregarding teaching. We need good teachers, people that know the Word, people that can teach the Word. That's partially what I'm doing here in, in proclaiming the Word is, is teaching it. So we need good teaching. But I'll tell you what's more, what's more valuable, what's more important, what has a greater impact on your life and on my life is catching it as we do life together, as watching other people follow Christ, as watching other people work through issues, as watching other people walk in faith when they can't see where they're going, when they can't see all of the answers, all the exam, everything in front of them. They can't see that, but they're trusting God for a good end. We're trusting God for a good result in the, in the, down the road. And those examples, those examples are caught. We catch those from one another. We catch those from one another. So the company that we keep is really important because a lot of what we know, most of what we know perhaps, is caught rather than taught. We learn mostly by a de demonstrated example. Paul says there in verse 34, some of you don't, uh, are not in that position. You don't have the knowledge of God because you're not hanging with the right people. You're not around the right crowd. You're not being influenced by the people that will point you to Christ. You're actually being influenced by evil company, and that's dragging you the other direction. He says, I speak this to your shame. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to the world. He's talking here to the church. 
And that can have an effect for you and, and for me. That can have an effect on all of us. And it's going to affect your, if you're influenced by the wrong crowd or if you're influenced by the right crowd, it's going to have an effect when people come up to you and ask you the questions we talked about last week. What happens when I die? What happens when I take my last breath, when my, when my heart beats its last beat? What happens then? And the influences that you and I are a part of, the influences that we soak in, are going to affect your answer. They absolutely are going to affect your answer. That's why it's important that we avoid evil company. That's why it's important that we avoid false doctrine. Doctrines of demons, all those types of things that are described in the Word. What happens when we die? What happens to my physical body? Or what happens to my soul and my spirit? See, knowing the truth about Jesus' resurrection and our own resurrection affects the way that we live today. It affects how we're going to respond to people, but it also affects how you live today. If, you, if a person doesn't believe that that's true, right? And this is what Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't believe that this is true, we might as well just party it up, right? We might as well smoke as much as we can smoke, drink as much as we can drink, sleep with whoever we can sleep with. It doesn't matter if there's no resurrection, was his point. It doesn't matter, but it does matter. It absolutely matters. So the Holy Spirit then refrains us and convicts us when we do wrong as believers. If we're not believers, there's no conviction there. See, knowing the truth about Jesus' resurrection and our own, it affects the way that we live today. There's three things that we need to get today as we move along and close out chapter 15. I'll give you those three things, then we'll go in and fill in the blanks. But we need to get ready, we need to get specific, and then we need to get going. We need to get ready. We have to have an understanding of, of what's going to happen. There's some specifics in there that we need to understand, and then we need to get going. We need to get going in ministry, get going in life. And Paul really starts off this passage, we'll start in verse 35, he really starts out with these two questions from somebody that has a, uh, a critical view, let's say, of the resurrection. And there's a reason why I termed it a critical view, we'll get to that in just a second, but, but Paul answers some of these very similar questions that I just asked, he answers them for that critic that's out there. That's, and he says right here in verse 35, follow along. But someone will say, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So two questions, how are the dead raised up? This is a question that Paul uh, really doesn't get into here so much. Uh, uh, <clears throat> he doesn't really answer it in these following verses. Uh, because the answer is obvious, uh, God is the one that raises the dead. Christianity 101, God's the one that raises the dead. The apostle Paul said this to Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 8. Uh, why should it be thought incredible by you that God has raised the dead? Why is this such a big deal, he says to Agrippa, right? And so God's the one that raises the dead. The second question is, and with what body do they come? This is kind of more of, uh, well, both of them are similar in this regard. I say they're a foolish question because Paul calls his imaginary questioner foolish one right there foolish one in verse 36 right there in the next verse but it's the question really that Paul's going to spend a lot of time answering and he answers these questions these critics questions with two analogies one the seed analogy and two the analogy of 
living in heavenly bodies. Let's go on to verse 36. So his answer is, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you, <coughs> you do not sow that the body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Uh, for a wheat plant to grow, for really any kind of plant to grow, but let's use wheat for an example because Paul mentioned it. What happens is, and, and uh, I, will, I will term him this, our famous farmer, Ed Talbot, is uh, down in super sunny Molokai. So he's not here for a point of reference. He's always sitting over here, so I always kind of have this farming point of reference. But if those of you know that I'm a farmer as well, so I've been through this drill a few times for maybe like 50 years. But every spring, we got to, to, to till the ground, fertilize the ground, get it ready, and then we plant a crop. And when you plant a crop, and if you have a handful of seeds, you know, you, you fill the machine full of seed, and that seed goes in the ground. And essentially, it dies right there. It dies because here's what happens. That little kernel starts to decay. And as it decays, and as it has a good, what we call in the farming industry, seed-to-soil contact, right? There needs to be some good seed-to-soil contact because it's a moisture in the ground that helps it start to rot a little bit and decay. And then all of a sudden what happens is a shoot pops up and it starts to, comes out of the bottom and it starts to turn and it just naturally knows. It's crazy. We talk about evolution not really working too well. How does it know to grow up? It knows to grow up because its genetics are created that way. So it comes out of the bottom and it turns. It's just this little tiny, just this little tiny thing. It's even hard to see when it's, if you dig one up when it just starts to happen. It just starts to sprout, grows out of the bottom, and it turns and it starts to grow towards the sky, even though it's still underground. Right? Then eventually, and we've all seen, and you can get on YouTube or on the internet, and you can see these sped up videos, you know, where all of a sudden a whole field just turns, boof, turns, starts to turn real bright green as all these little plants start to, to break through the topsoil. There's an interesting thing about the area that we live in, uh, and I know Ed struggles with this, I struggle with it. We farm a lot of clay ground, and clay ground is super tricky because if you put that seed in the ground and then you get a nice big rain and you're thinking, all right, we got rain, this is going to be great. We need that rain, and then the next day it's 90, and it has a tendency to bake that topsoil, about the top three-quarters to an inch or so of topsoil. And what happens, what's going on underneath the surface is those plants, they come and they come up and they hit that crust, and you know what they do? They don't know what to do. They start growing sideways. They start growing sideways underneath that crust. So, smart people like my neighbor Wayne, who's passed away a few years ago, he decided, you know what? We can combat that problem, and let's try a few different things. And so he tried a harrow. He'd drag a harrow across it. Anything that fractures that little top soil allows then that plant that's growing up and then growing sideways to turn and grow up again. It's an amazing thing to see underground. And I'm getting way off in the weeds with the farming analogy, way more than my notes. 
The reality, though, for seed is it has to die. Part of regenerating itself is dying. It has to die. It has to germinate, sprout, and then grow through the topsoil and continue its life cycle. And guess what? It doesn't come out as just one. When it's mature, it's just not one seed. It's just not one kernel. It's dozens of kernels. It replicates from one little seed into a whole plant. Jesus told Nicodemus this in John chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, this, this wise spiritual leader, teacher in Israel, one of the top level dudes. He would be a, he would be a Harvard professor, right? He would be a, a, a seminary uh, professor today. One of the top God followers in Israel for that day was struggling with this concept. So if you're struggling with this concept, hey, you're in pretty good, you're in a pretty good spot, right? But Jesus is simply telling him, hey, if you want to live spiritually, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. It's the same principle that Paul talks about here. Things that are replicated after their own type. Look at verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men and another kind of flesh of animals, another of fish and another of birds. There's also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in its glory. All flesh is not the same. Our human bodies are created different than the rest of creation. Don't give in to and don't teach your kids or allow them to be given over to this evolutionary thought that we're all just the same. That we're all just the same. We're not the same. And it doesn't take but a third grade education to figure that out. Long before you can even spell, you know, evolution. We're not the same. We're created differently. We're created differently. And there's a lot of examples, a lot of awesome things that, that creation can do that we can't do, right? There's three examples uh, from the living things. Animals can live in the harshest of conditions without shelter. If you go stay in the Mojave dev Desert for months on end, you're going to have a problem. But there's animals that can live there, right? If, if uh, Josh decides, Josh, why don't you go open that door out there, go open that window back there, don't really do it, but th hypothetically, what's going to happen if you go open that window and you jump up on the ledge and say, hey, I can fly. <laughs> right? You're going to leave a big dent in the ground down at the bottom. Right? Yeah, we're not created to fly, but birds are created to fly. We're not created to live underwater in the depths of the sea, but the fish are. They're created that way. So not all flesh is the same. Not all flesh is the same. Neither is it in heavenly sense. The sun, the moon, the, so the stars, the celestial uh, uh, components that we see uh, day and night, they're created a certain way. And they have glory in that certain way. What's Paul saying here in these first set of verses? He's saying, hey, we, we, we need to understand 
that uh, we have an opportunity here to get ready. God's created these things a certain way, but He's created us a certain way as well. And He's created and gives us the opportunity to live in a resurrected body should we decide to trust and receive Christ's forgiveness, receive Him as Lord and Savior, and trust in who He is. Trust that, I, I like it this way, trust that Jesus is who Jesus says He is. Don't worry about what I say if you don't think it's true or if you're unsure. Dig it up for yourself. Study it out for yourself. I came to that conclusion as a 19-year-old. Hey, I, I need to dig in and see, is, is Jesus who Jesus says He is? And if that's all true, that left me at one crossroad, whether to trust or whether to just continue to go full on in my own way through life. I chose to trust. I chose to believe. I'm inviting anybody to trust and believe. But in trusting and believing, in trusting in Christ, He's created us and he, 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 he overcomes sin and death, the second part, death, because God's created those that believe for a resurrected body. So we need to get ready for the big change. That's essentially what Paul's saying. Not all this other stuff. It, there might be some change for some of these others in the end times events for sure. But we need to get ready as eternal beings, we need to get ready for this big change. God created our physical bodies with a certain shelf life. That's what I'm getting at. Uh, you break over the, the 50 barrier like I did this last year. Where's Tony at? He's always just a step ahead of me, that guy. Tony's 51. Happy birthday, Tony, a couple weeks ago. Hey, you start thinking, well, if you start thinking a little bit more about eternity, the older you get. We need to be ready for that. We need to be charged up about that. It's not something to be fearful. It's something to be excited about, I believe. Christians must be ready for this big change that God's created us for. The change to a resurrected body is a change that we should anticipate with hope and with joy. That's what Paul's getting at. We should anticipate this with, with hope and with joy. That's exactly why every time they... They, he went from town to town, you know, in the Roman world and preached the gospel and got completely trashed every time. They beat him up. They stoned him. They left him for dead. They did all these things. He just sprang up. Oh, well, still alive, right? I'm still alive. One of my, uh, uh, one of my favorite people in the world is Grover Albee who lives up in Summit Valley. And Grover's been in more skitter accidents and pickup wrecks and car wrecks than anybody I can even think of. And he was in a real bad one years ago uh, when I was in my early 20s. Uh, and uh, he had a deer actually come and run into him. He was in this, him and this guy in Chewila had, had restored this mid-60s, 66 Ford. And they just put a mountain of money. This thing was just completely brand new from, from the frame up. And a flatbed, the whole nine yards. And he had a skitter tire on the back of the flatbed. And uh, he's cooking down the road, and this deer comes up and hits him right, runs right into the wheel well, and wraps around the axle and severs the brake line and left him with no brakes. And he just across the road, into the bank, bam, over, skitter tire smashes the back of the cab, and, uh, and he, he, he hit the bank, skitter tire hit the cab, they flopped over, 
big V and the top of the cab. He's hanging there upside down with just a lap belt on. And I said, then what did you do? He said, I had my eyes squinted. I started to wiggle my fingers and toes. And said, oh, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> right? That was his response. And I think about that when I think of and read about the Apostle Paul and these other apostles, you know, that gone through these horrendous things for the sake of the gospel. They kind of like got up, well, I'm not dead yet, so I need to still keep moving. How were they able to do that? A big, compart- a big part of their mentality was they were ready They were ready for the resurrected body. They were ready for the change. They were ready, so it it didn't matter. They win either way, the apostle says, right? To live is is gain, to die is to gain, you know, to live is for Christ. He was ready either way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In another passage, another passage in the New Testament where Paul is looking forward to the reality of the resurrected body, he reminds the Philippian readers the believers there in Philippi of three things. He says essentially this, we're not from here. We're not from here. With a change of our spiritual identity comes a change of our address as well. The second thing he reminds them of is that we're looking eagerly, enthusiastically, we're ready, we're excited for Jesus' return. And the third thing is, is we're looking for the change from a lowly body to a glorious body. I'll read it for you. Philippians 3.20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue, subdue all things to Himself. We need to be ready for that change. We need to be ready and, uh, that it's coming. Right? That time stops for no man. The death rate in the world is 100%. And I know we can laugh about it. That joke is funny to all the young people and not so funny to all the old people. But I'm going to keep saying it because it's true. It's true. So are we ready? Are we ready? And Paul shifts from these kind of these general examples of animals and celestial beings, he shifts from those general examples in nature than to specific examples in the resurrection. Let's keep moving forward. Pick it up, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. Verse 42 says this, So also, so connecting these thoughts all together, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor and it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. There's, <clears throat> there is a natural body, and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, verse, verse 46 says, however, the spirit is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man <clears throat> was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is, from, is the Lord from heaven. And <clears throat> was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so are, the, are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul's getting very specific now. 
He's dialing in and he's getting specific because God has detailed these things that he will do for us and the things that he will do to us. The things that he will do for us and the things that he'll do to us. There's four specifics here in the early verses. Look at them together, verse 42. There's four specifics that contrast, that are contrast in the change. The body is, first thing, it's sown in corruption and it's raised in incorruption. It's raised in incorruption. In other words, what is our body going to look like? What's the resurrected body look like? Uh, I'm going to put it this way. We get an ageless body. We get an ageless body. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. There's no decay. There's no aging. There's no uh, getting older. Things uh, don't wear out. Your body, my body, wears out. It does. It wears out. It'll be nice to have a body that doesn't wear out, right? Now all the people that are over 60 are like, yeah, now we're talking. It's ageless. Let's look at the second one. The second specific there. It's sown in dishonor and it's raised in glory. It's sown in dishonor and it's raised in glory. We get a beautiful body. We get a beautiful body. It's sown in weakness and it's raised in power is the third one. It's sown in weakness and it's raised in power. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, how, how, how are we to understand that? Here it is. We get an energetic body. You're not going to be tired. I'm not going to be tired. We'll have all the energy that we'll need for whatever we're going to do. And it's not going to be playing a harp on a cloud, right? That's not the biblical picture of a resurrected body. We'll get into what that looks like in Jesus' example out of the book of Luke. But it's going to be energetic. Who's tired of running out of energy? Who's faking themselves by drinking energy drinks? Now nobody will raise their hand, right? <laughs> yeah, don't drink energy drinks. I'm just going to say that from the front. Things are terrible. You'll get an energetic body. You won't run out of energy. You won't run out of enthusiasm. The fourth thing there, the fourth one that Paul talks about when he talks about the specifics, he says that sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. It's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. So what does that look like? How does that play out? I want to start with one... Uh, straightforward thought is that uh, <clears throat> you will not be a ghost. If that's what, you know, Disney has taught you or is that's what Disney's teaching your kids, turn it off. The Bible does not... Actually, the Bible talks very specifically about it not being a ghost in the resurrected body. That's bad theology. And I've heard way too much of it for way too long and nobody says anything because Disney's cute. Disney's not cute. Oh, there's a few things maybe that are cute, right? There's a few things that are kind of fun. But the problem is, is that for most anymore, uh, you can't, they struggle to differentiate between truth and fiction. We do not get a ghostly body. Let's turn to a passage that talks about that very specifically so you have an example that you can lean on when you're sharing with somebody else when they say, well, I 
can't wait till I die. I'll become a spirit, a ghost. Luke chapter 24, 36 through 39. Now as they say, <clears throat> said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. So this is Jesus' resurrected body. As they were talking, <laughs> Jesus shows up. Not a ghost. Let's look into it and find it out. And said to them, peace, with, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. Maybe your translation and a better translation is really that they had seen a ghost. Spirit here with a small s. It's talking about being a ghost. His followers, right from the get-go, in their fear, in the confusion, in not understanding what was going to happen, and he shows up in his perfect resurrected body, and they're scared out of their mind, Luke tells us, that their first instinct was, oh, Jesus is a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And he showed them these things. He said, behold my hands and my feet. That is, I myself. Handle me and see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. There's a difference between a ghost or spirits and a resurrected body. Jesus was standing there with all the scars, with all the, with all the attributes that they had seen him last, you know, having, hanging on the cross. He had it all. He showed, told Thomas later on in the storyline, he says, hey, go ahead, take, take a look, take a feel. If you don't think it's me, here you go. Right? So he's not a ghost. He's not a ghost. Nor will we be. No, we get a godly body. Sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. I put it this way. We get a godly body. We get a godly body. So what does that look like is the question on your faces and in your minds. What does a godly body look like? There's a great comparison between a natural body, the body of flesh, Paul calls it, and the spirit. Galatians 5, 19 through 23 gives us that contrast and I think it's really the greatest opportunity uh, to, to look at a list of what a godly body kind of looks like. I'll read in verse 19 to kind of set up the contrast. Paul says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. The, the, the natural works, the, the works of our natural body, he says they're, they're evident. Uh, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So kind of putting it all in one big category, he says anything that's similar to any of these, you know, we just kind of lump it all together. That's what the natural body, that's what the flesh is after, right? That's where it goes, uh, that's, that's where it naturally bends, is towards those things. That's our natural bent in the flesh, Right from the get-go. Right from the early chapters of Genesis, that becomes the natural bent. He goes on to say, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Here's the contrast. Here's what the godly body looks like. Here's how it expresses itself. But the fruit of the Spirit, the spiritual body, is this. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the godly body looks like in action. That's what, the, that's what the resurrected body looks like in, in motion in that day. That's one of the greatest pictures we can have. I know we look at those as fruits of the Spirit and, the, and, and all of that, which is true. That's not a bad way to look at it. I'm just saying like that's what the resurrected body is going to look like. That's how we're going to behave. That's how we're going to function. That's how we're going to think. We're going to think lovingly. We're going to think and act joyfully. We're going to think and act peacefully. We're going to think and, and act in a long-suffering sort of a way. We're going we're to have kindness. We're going to have self-control. We're going to have gentleness. The resurrected body is going to be a body full of goodness. And those who have... Against... <clears throat> I'll just read the rest of the passage. Against this thing, there is no law... There is no law against these things. Although I would say in later days here, they seem to be pushing laws that be push the envelope here. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So Paul's gotten very specific here in 1 Corinthians. We're going to have those same attributes, and we should be actually in this life, uh, the dress rehearsal for eternity, we should be working on those same things. And that comes sometimes by leaps and bounds, sometimes a step forward and three back. Uh, it comes uh, not easily does the attributes of the Spirit. It really comes not through fight, but really comes through surrender. Because we always end up at that crossroad. How am I going to respond to what this person said? How am I going to respond to what's just happened at work? How, how am I going to respond when, when something happens that, that is not a consequence for my actions, but just something that's come into my life? Something I didn't expect. Something that I don't quote-unquote deserve. Right? How am I going to respond? And we have always an opportunity then to respond by walking in the Spirit by demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. It's a dress rehearsal for what's to come, and we're going to have them same attributes. We'll have those same attributes with our resurrected body. Jesus' resurrected body is really our prototype. Jesus, what we read in Luke uh, about Jesus' resurrected body really is the prototype for our own resurrected body and the kind of the number one thing here that goes with this is out of revelation chapter 22 verse 3 which says there's no longer any curse there's no longer any curse john says the curse is what is has happened has subjected our bodies to decay and to death there will be no more curse so god's specific about the changes uh, Paul inserts this also in the next few verses. It happens quick. It happens quick. Verse 50 says this, Now this I say, brethren, back to 1 Corinthians 15, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Same thing that he just said to the 
Philippians, nor does, or the Galatians, excuse me, nor does the corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. A parallel passage to that, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, he says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. When the Bible says asleep here, when Paul's talking about those who are asleep, not talking about grandma taking a nap because she had a busy morning in the garden, it's talking about people that have already passed away, people that have already taken their last breath, their last heartbeat, so they've died, we would say. They've died, and it says... <clears throat> we who are alive and remain, so there'll be those that won't experience death, and there'll be those that do. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who fall asleep, who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's your straightforward description of verse 16. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, verse 18, uh, this passage was not to create more mystery, it was to create comfort and encouragement because verse 18 says, therefore comfort one another with these words. That's Paul's intent, that's the Holy Spirit's intent writing through the Apostle Paul. And there's an easy way to remember all of this uh, I picked this up from a pastor I used to listen to and still occasionally do. But we can think of our bodies, we can think of, well, you think of yourself in this way. You think of yourself as a computer, right? Think of yourself as a computer. Think about it. Right, whatever, right? If you want to be a laptop, Shannon, be a laptop. Uh, think of yourself as a computer. You have two components, essentially. You have the hardware your natural body, and you have the software, your spirit and your soul. You have got the hardware, and you have the software. The hardware and the software. Those that have fallen asleep, those that have, have, have as Paul says to the Thessalonians, those that have died in Christ, those believers that have, have ceased to continue to live physically, so their hardware shut down, their hardware shut down. There's going to come a day where the hardware and their software gets reunited. These things are going to happen instantaneously. There will be those that hardware is still running, software is still running, and their Christ is going to show up. This is the same word that's been passed on for 2,000 years. The same truths, same everything. Some will see and experience the resurrection, with both their hardware and their software, and some will experience a reuniting of their hardware and their software. Those are the dead in Christ. Either way, we will all be changed and receive an ageless, beautiful, energetic, and a godly body if we're in Christ. If you're in Christ. That's the caveat to the whole thing. That's why the gospel that he gives us in 1 Corinthians you know, 15, 3, and 4 is so critical and is the message. That's the message. 
that God has sent Christ to redeem all that was lost, all that was given away in the garden, and from that point forward, and so Christ has come to redeem all of that and to re-engage with mankind face-to-face relationship. One last point as we close this thing down. Verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so that when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Kind of a mocking questions. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The key to these last couple verses, verses 56 and 57, Sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can look back at what Jesus has done for us, trusting in his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace. Uh, we can look forward to the future with hope of the hope of a perfect body and a perfect place and all that comes with all that Paul and, and, and God has just described as the resurrected body, all of that. So we can look back we can look back with, with joy, with gratitude, and we can look forward with anticipation. Absolutely. Death and sin have been overcome through Christ. So we don't need to fear those two things. But, but he says in these last couple of verses, but we need to get going. We need to get going in the here and now. We have, a <clears throat> we have to live in the present. Paul ends the chapter with the encouragement that is uh, our encouragement for you today. That the things in the past, the payment for our sins, the new body, the new life in Christ, the things in the future, a perfect and resurrected body with no decay, all of these promises should motivate and inspire us to live and to get going for today. That's why he says the very... Last verse, therefore, my brethren, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Don't be shaken. Steadfast means you're planted like concrete. So the winds and waves of life, the adversity that comes our way, I've said this, I've, said this, uh, I've used this example several times because it was just so impressive to me that the day that, that as we were working on the sign out there at the road, we put a cement truck full of concrete in each hole. Right? There's, there's 10, 12 yards of concrete underneath each leg of that sign that we all drive by. Every day. We, don't, we don't think about that because you're only, you're only seeing like that much of the concrete sticking out. If you glance at it at all, most of us don't. We're looking for a place to park. If the parking lot's icy, we're trying not to run into other people's cars. Right? But we don't even give it a second thought when we pull in. But if we had just stood up that steel sign and said, well, this ground's firm enough, no way. It had already been on the ground. Because it's being steadfast means that you have an anchor that's bigger than you. 
And that sign has two anchors <laughs> that's way bigger and way heavier than the steel that comes up out of the ground. So Paul's saying, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Don't be moved around. He says in other parts of, uh, uh, of the New Testament, you know, don't be tossed around to and fro. Don't be so affected by what other people have to say. If it's not true, if it's not parallel with the Word of God, don't be worked up about it in a sense that it moves you from where you are. Be steadfast. Be immovable, he says. And always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Jesus saves us, not that we would ride the pine in life. Be about the work of the Lord. Wherever that happens, don't be afraid of it happening. Don't be afraid. We should be looking constantly, all of us, looking for opportunities to minister to people around us. Wherever it is, at work, at school, in the marketplace, at the gas station, I use these examples constantly. We should constantly and always be looking and searching for a place where we can show, where we can demonstrate, and where we can share Christ's goodness with those around us. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing this, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I've scratched my head over the years at times thinking, Tammy and I have been involved in, you know, ministry pretty much our whole marriage in some capacity or another. And there's times and there's been seasons where I think, man, do these kids get it? Like, I'm really, you know, and, and if you dwell on that part, if you dwell on the kids that, that come and go in Awana that you think, ah, I'm not sure, you know, or whatever, it, it can kind of, it, in times, it can kind of be frustrating, right? He says, hey, know this, that whatever you do, whatever you do, ministry-wise, and hey, we're all in ministry. Let's, let's just put that flat on the table. We're all in ministry in some capacity or another. Maybe some of us need a little more ether in our ministry, right? A little shot in the carb, get us going. Maybe I'll rephrase that. Some of us need a little starting fluid, right well we're all in ministry know this don't get frustrated don't get frustrated with it god is going to use that in a way that you that you may never see or you might not see for 20 or 30 years and we've seen that time and time again tammy and i've been reminded over the years there's been times where you know, you'd think, man, I just don't know. I, I just don't know if we, you know, did we really reach these kids or not? And then sooner or later, you know, sooner or later, one of those kids that you didn't think was ever paying attention, you know, steps into your life and you're like, whoa. You know, God was using not only us, but the other people around. So don't give up on it. Don't get frustrated. Know that, that, that your demonstration of truth in Christ is going to have an effect. Live like you know uh, the, the future in a sense. Because we do know the future if you're a Christ follower. right? So we should live with that confidence. We should live with that hope. We should live with that joy that, hey, whatever happens is going to kind of happen. You know, We're not going to run down the highway at 90 and flirt with danger 
tipping across the yellow line to try to make it happen. But whatever God is going to do, he's going to do. And so if we're here, we've got work to do. And if we're there, that means that our work, according to him, is done. Amen? Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.